Hello, and welcome to this podcast presented by the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. of the Southern Alberta Council on Public Affairs. My name is Curtis Goodman, and I will be your moderator for this afternoon's session. Glad you could all make it here. Um, please find your seats. Uh, make sure if you have a cell phone or a cellular device to uh, put that on silent mode or turn it off. Uh, that would be greatly appreciated. Also, be sure to uh, pay for lunch if you are going to be joining us. There are baskets on the table. Please make sure you put your $11 in uh, $2 if you're just having coffee, and please, if somebody could take charge of counting and making sure that we've got accurate funds in there, and uh, SACPA representative will be buying to pick that up. So today, the topic is off-road vehicles, recreation or recreation, the challenges of protecting fragile ecosystems. Off-highway vehicles pose a unique challenge to our watershed when balancing land use for recreation, tourism, and the environment. OHVs can be an exciting way for outdoor enthusiasts to enjoy public land. However, irresponsible OHV activity can upset the delicate balance of natural areas through lasting damage to landscape, including soil compaction, contamination, erosion, loss of vegetation, wildfires, wildlife disruption, and many other problems. Off-trail activity often goes unreported and causes incalculable damages. How do we reconcile the deep destruction caused by illegal off-highway vehicle activity? The speakers today will argue that more needs to be done to educate and increase awareness on the issues of off-highway vehicles. We have two speakers lined up for you today. Uh, first, Anna Garlap from the Old Man Watershed Council will be talking. Uh, and taking us a, through a tour of the headwaters, taking a look at their Engaging Recreationists program, where they hired outreach assistants and headwaters consultants. Also joining us today is Becky Cousins, an uh, active member of the Lethbridge Naturalist Society and a volunteer at the Helen Schuler Nature Center. She's going to be sharing some of her personal experience in some of our parkland and some of the OHV activity that is happening there. So the speakers will be going for about 30 minutes, then we will break for lunch, and then after that we will have a chance for a question and answer period. So please uh, stay tuned and uh, let's uh, explore this issue a little further. I introduce Anna. They gave me a step ladder. <laughs> Hello. I'm going to have bruised shins by the time I'm done. Does that work for everybody? So uh, I'm not going to do a PowerPoint. I've got a, a continuous loop of slides, so you don't have to try and read and listen at the same time, and they'll just uh, loop. Excellent. Okay, well, thank you for everyone uh, for coming. It's really, really good to, to see so many people here, so many people engaged. I hope what I have to say um, doesn't shock you too much. We'll, we'll see what happens. They say it takes an entire village to raise a child. There are about 275,000 people living in the Old Man Watershed. 
and about 10% are under 18. Many of those kids have never been to the mountains, and believe it or not, most of them have never been camping. We live in a world where antibacterial hand soap is ubiquitous, where wild animals are perceived as terrifying. And not only is playing in the dirt not allowed, but most playgrounds are empty. The silent sound of the swing scraping on its chain, baseball diamonds overgrown. Back when after supper baseball shinnies were a thing, my family had a tent. It was an old canvas army tent, big enough for the four of us, with our sleeping bags in a row. And if you were one of the two on the outside, as I invariably was, you had to be careful that your sleeping bag didn't touch the canvas at night. And I know there are a few people in the room who know what I'm talking about. Many is the time that I woke up in a trench of ice-cold water. Dad was particularly proud of his cowboy coffee, and Mom was an expert campfire cook with breads, mouth-watering corn on the cob, and even cake coming from her fire. Dad hand-built our 18-foot fiberglass canoe, and I learned to fish by wrestling northern pike. My son told me not to say that. He said it sounded too macho, but I put it in anyways. Um, <laughs> it took me decades to realize that we weren't normal, not by a long shot. Recently, I drove by a used RV lot. What caught my eye was an old-style retro camper from back in the day, the kind we couldn't afford, the kind that my, made my dad's lip curl in disdain, the kind I would have given anything to spend a dry night in. I gasped when I realized that I was looking at not one but two campers. There was another one parked right behind that cute little retro with the flower pots under its window. The 2015 version is easily four times as long, much, much higher, and painted with tribal warrior symbols. The tribal warrior who owns it sleeps on a pillow-top queen mattress when he climbs into his trailer at night, has a full kitchen with running water, hot shower, flat-screen TV. My point is this. There is a love-hate relationship with nature we fear it and revere it. Too few of us get the opportunity to come close enough to really understand it. We protect what we love. We love what we understand, and we understand what we are taught. With modern camping and OHVs, nature is becoming more accessible to more people. It is possible to enjoy nature longer using these new technologies. One of the most dedicated conservationists I know, who happens to be in this room, rides the backcountry with a quad. Her legs won't carry her to the top of the trail anymore. She'll probably kill me for saying that. With these new technologies come new freedoms. With new freedoms, new responsibilities and challenges. The population all over Alberta is expected to increase dramatically. The land is becoming more and more stressed and some people are going where they shouldn't be. Some willfully, more due to a lack of education about our backcountry. It is up to us to provide access, to teach, and to promote a shared understanding of a shared landscape. The consequences of not doing so are real. But we're not an environmentalist group. 
we represent the OHV rider as much as we represent the bird watcher. The, o the OWC is one of 11 watershed planning and advisory councils in the province whose mandate is to provide the science and expert opinion on watershed management and health to the provincial government. In fact, we advise all levels of government and apply for some funding from them, but we are independent and nonprofit. We provide a forum for all voices to be heard so that together we can make better, more conscious decisions about how we live, work, and play in the Old Man Basin. One of our key pieces of research, and I'm not sure if you've heard about it, is the Integrated Watershed Management Plan, or the IWMP. It's stakeholder-driven, a collaborative effort between sectors, stakeholders, First Nations, and the public. It gives voice to the community vision, the community vision for the Old Man Watershed. And it's a key outcome under the Alberta government's Water for Life strategy. There are eight goals listed in the IWMP. Don't, don't worry, I'm not gonna list them all here. Today's talk revolves around goal three, manage and protect the integrity of the headwaters and source waters. The headwaters action plan was completed in 2014, so this is all new stuff, and is in the first phase of implementation. So why the headwaters? Some people think, well, we, we don't care about what happens downstream. No, we, we do, it's just right now we're, we're embarking on this journey and this is the first point of action for us. The headwaters are a growing hot spot of land use concerns and cumulative effects on watershed integrity. 77% of subbasins in the headwaters are at moderate to high risk and pressure from this kind of activity. 90% of the water for the Old Man River starts here. The eastern slopes is critical it's a critical water tower for southwestern Alberta and beyond. Our water exits out in the Hudson's Bay. It's got a long journey to go. And that has real-world implications for your water supply and water quality downstream. We chose Dutch Creek as our area of special interest because it has all of the good, the bad, and the ugly in it. And the first step in all science is to draw a baseline, and that's what we did. A linear features classification was conducted in 2014. Let me clarify. Linear features are roads, seismic lines, grazing areas, power lines, pipelines, also recreation trails, mines, clear cuts, and culverts. So basically anything that fragments the landscape. The majority of these linear features continue to be used for other purposes than their original use. What looks like an open public trail probably isn't. And that's kind of the crux of our problem. This summer, the OWC set out to understand the missing link. The part between people loving the backcountry and people utterly destroying it while they're there. We put the next piece of the scientific process into place, conducting a pilot project. The OWC hired two outreach assistants this summer and fall to focus our efforts on building relationships within the OHV community and on developing a better understanding of concerns, barriers, and opportunities facing OHV riders and random campers. 
We spent numerous weekends in the backcountry, spending time in conversations and sharing stories and conducting surveys. Our interns also worked with the Crow's Nest Pass Quad Squad, the Government of Alberta's Department of Environment, Resources and Sustainable Development, and the Lethbridge Coulee Cruisers to help build new bridges and improve the decking of others. Actually, did you know that the majority of trail and bridge restoration work is being organized and done by the OHB groups themselves? Their connection to the land is strong and their desire to protect it is growing. The activities of random camping and OHB use are political on the surface, but they are also personal, deeply cultural, and emotional underneath. This summer, we also hosted a restoration for recreation event with partnering organizations. Hundreds of volunteers have sacrificed weekends to get up very early, some of them are here, work hard, and take action. And it's not just the oldie goldies, us preaching to the choir. We are encouraged by our outreach efforts to attract a new demographic who want less talk and more action. And they want to do it themselves. Kids these days. Sometimes it may seem as though all of our efforts are in vain in the face of our challenges. Yet more often, we are encouraged with the progress we are seeing on all fronts. On September 3rd, while our interns were still busy building bridges, physically and metaphorically, the announcement came that two new parks had been created in the capsule region. 1,040 square kilometers of our headwaters have now been protected from commercial logging and no new oil and gas licenses will be issued. Since then, and running to October the 5th, public and First Nations consultations have been held regarding campgrounds and continued OHV use. And just last week, the Minister of Environment, Shannon Phillips, announced the OWC as a recipient of a further $233,000 in funding from the Watershed Restoration and Resiliency Program toward establishing a demonstration site for land reclamation, restoration, and community outreach. Our hard work is getting noticed. But money is not the only thing required although I like to talk about it. It's not even the main part of the solution, and let me outline for you what is. Here are six main points, and this is some of what we are advising the government on for both the revision of the South Saskatchewan Regional Plan and management of the Castle Region. I realize I should be gesturing more for the camera, but I gotta hold myself up so I don't fall off my, my little ladder here. <laughs> <laughs> First of all, <laughs> behavior change and education alone deliver limited results. And what do I mean? Well, how can you tell riders to steer clear of water when there are no bridges, or bridges are too small, or there's no information about sensitive and restored areas? What information is out there is difficult to find and nearly impossible to understand. And trying to translate what's on a large-scale map on your computer at home to answering where am I on the back of a quad in the forest is not a challenge for the faint at heart. The greatest effort being put into documenting trails and advising users on access or lack thereof has been provided by nonprofit, volunteer-driven organizations like the Quad Squad. Second, real change pardon that expression, 
requires interventions at a systemic level, recreation management planning, regulation, and enforcement are critical to support responsible OHV use in the backcountry. Many leaders within the OHV community have long championed the need for these interventions, and it is shared common ground with the OWC. The fact of the matter is, linear disturbances have largely been created first by industry. These roads and trails are then adopted by OHV communities even though they may not be ideal for that use. Third, a shared value for nature is another common ground between the OWC and an important and influential segment of OHV riders, and I want to thank them today for coming. That's uh, a real show of support. Many do value conserving nature, and they, they emphasize that to me over and over again, and they use machines to access the backcountry to see wildlife and take photos they see OHV riding as a valued and treasured way to spend time with family and friends while interacting with nature. But the term environmentalism has had a bad rep. The OHV community has had much equipment damaged and their safety put in jeopardy by others who are going to extremes to stop them. I've heard tales of camouflage holes in the trail, nails and screws on paths, and downright dangerous activities that give environmentalism a bad name. Fourth, please remember that for the most part, the OHV community has footed the burden of trail maintenance, building, and education for responsible use. They have, in fact, advocated for additional licensing and regulation. The off-road industry in Alberta is valued at over $2 billion, on par with revenues for wheat production in this province. There is scope to do a better job at fundraising for OHV education, and OHV dealerships are asking to pitch in. Fifth, although managing a shared landscape is complex, restricting access to nature is counterproductive to watershed stewardship. The way forward involves developing an integrated approach to OHV programming. That includes, here you go, I'm going to hold myself steady here promoting and supporting OHV riders to steer clear of water, providing education on why staying off water matters, and advocating for critical systemic intervention. Let me be absolutely clear. Neanderthal behavior and 21st century technology make a deadly cocktail. That's a social problem with both human and environmental consequences. Last and certainly not least, and here's the sixth point, we need residents and recreationists to make their voices heard. They say it takes an entire village to raise a child. I say it takes an entire village to protect its watershed. We need your efforts to make the new demonstration site a success. Whether you enjoy the backcountry from a leaky old tent, a fancy fifth-wheeler, on horseback, by foot, or on an OHV, we will protect what we love. We love what we understand. We understand what we are taught. Thank you for being part of the conversation, and thank you for giving the old man a voice. Uh,
myself against Anna, so I didn't know whether I would need the stool or not. So can you hear me? And and uh, I can see you, so that's great. My presentation is in a much narrower area than Anna's, and it won't be nearly so eloquent, I'm afraid. It deals with off-road vehicles in Alexander Wilderness Park. Alexander Wilderness Park is uh, located in North, North Lethbridge. It is a natural land park, quite large in area. It's bound on the east by, the, uh, by Hardyville and Legacy Ridge and a bit of cropland. On the south, it adjoins Pinaquit Park Topland, uh, to the west, the river, and to the north, Pavan Park um, Coolies. As you can see, there's a large area of topland on the right-hand side of your screen, and that slopes gradually down into some steeply incised coolies. Uh, they end in quite a high cliff band at the river's edge, and then there is a smaller area of floodplain jutting out into the river. There is only one road down into Alexander Park, starts on Legacy Ridge, and uh, maybe I can point it out to you here, I hope. It starts on Legacy Ridge and drops down and down and down almost to the floodplain. From there, there is a trail uh, that goes out to the floodplain and some uh, crushed gravel and red shale trails. There is no road at all on this large area of topland and coolies. This, uh, this page is taken from the City of Lethbridge website, uh, the Parks website. It is very interesting to note how uh, Alexander Park is described as a tranquil preservation area, sheltered by cliffs and bordered by the river. Um, and so then uh, there is not any uh, mention made whatsoever of the very large topland area. So, because of the ignoring of the part of the topland area, it has become a mecca for off-road, illegal off-road vehicle activity, because this is designated a natural area parkland. Vehicles are entering uh, illegally off of 44th Avenue North, that's the most northerly avenue in Hardyville. If you're driving on your way out to the Van Park on 13th Street South, you will have passed it. And from there, 
they are using a pre-existing road that is gated and fenced. Um, it is the city wants to keep this road open for fire protection in case of grass fires. So vehicles come into the area and drop down so into this shallow coulee area right out onto the ridge tops right to the end of the coulees. You can see on this slope, uh, it shows up, I have a better photo later, um, these slopes are just being totally destroyed by the off-road activity. Uh, if the gate to this area happens to be locked, it is very easy for, for trucks to just drive along the outside edge of the fence, they've established a good roadway there, up to the area where it meets uh, private land, they go around the end of the city fence, follow an old broken down uh, fence running westward, either drive over it or to the end and then access the land that way. There is definitely uh, a problem with access to the top land. Um, in the bottom uh, slide there is the gateway in the barbed wire fencing. The gate uh, in this uh, this particular slide, when I was there in September, the gate was missing altogether. It had been secured to the post on the left by a wire at the top and a wire at the bottom. It was very easy for uh, whoever took it away to just cut the wire, take the gate right off. Um, and the city did in October, the Parks Department replaced the gate and locked it. Very, very shortly thereafter, uh, about 75 feet north of the gate, uh, the fence was cut and vehicles drove in to the cut fence. And that was a thumb-your-nose gesture. Uh, we could do whatever we want gesture because, as I've just explained before, it's so easy for vehicles just to drive another 75 meters, go around the end of the fence on private land, head west from there. This is the roadway and parking lot down into, um, into the floodplain area of Alexander Park. It's perhaps a little confusing. The bottom is an aerial view of the uh, parking lot. The top is the gate at the end of the parking lot. The roadway down into the park uh, is, is uh, bordered by a strong cable fencing anywhere that vehicles might leave it to access coulee slopes. The parking lot has the same cable fencing, and there is a sturdy metal gate uh, to keep vehicles from going any further. Why is this top uh, same type of fencing not surrounding the top lands? The problem with off-road vehicles, well, uh, this photo was taken in September after the rains that we had. Uh, the soft grasses and land was just totally chewed out by the trucks. And uh, what is that going to do? Well, it is, it is taking the vegetation away. The soil is exposed. It's exposed to gullying by rain. In dry periods, there will be wind erosion. Um, it is... Uh, there... there as, um, was a miracle this summer with the very dry weather we had that uh, grassland fire did not start 
from a hot muffler or hot tailpipe. Perhaps the grass was too short. Uh, this is extremely disruptive to wildlife, and it certainly uh, is is very difficult for public enjoyment if you're there to uh, get close to some stillness in your life. I didn't want to miss that one. That was a huge monster truck uh, made after the rain as well. What is so frustrating and, and makes me so angry about this truck is that there was a very well-used road, roadway, in quotes, uh, immediately beside it, but the driver chose to chew up the soft grass instead. This is one of the main, again, quote, roadways. Uh, going down into the crudies, and you can see uh, off of it, this slope is just being totally trashed up and down. Um, just in the last two years, the crudely slope activity has become so much worse, and I believe it's because most half-ton trucks today have four-wheel drive, and that makes it so much easier just to get on those slopes. Prior to that, vehicles were mostly sticking to the ridge tops. Again, uh, after the rain track, and uh, just immediately to the right of it, uh, when I was there a couple of weeks ago, on a bit steeper slope, there is now almost a highway going up and down it. So why are grasslands important? Well, before the advent of agriculture, the whole of the prairie were covered in grasslands because it's too arid for trees. Grasses provide the same uh, uh, functions as trees in the mountains. They are habitat for animals and birds. They keep soil from eroding. Their huge root systems hold in the soil on steep slopes. Their, the grasses and the plants uh, prevent rainwater erosion, wind erosion. The breakdown uh, of decaying grass uh, roots and plant matter uh, builds fertile soil and they store carbon, which today is rather critical. There is certainly a problem of awareness to the users of trucks in this area. The top sign is the type of sign that's located along the city fencing on the eastern boundary of the park. Uh, it does have a little icon of a car and a line through it. But uh, it does not state that this is an illegal activity. The bottom sign was erected eventually uh, by city on top land in the Six Mile Cootie area. Uh, that's land between the college and the river. Vehicles have been driving through a barbed wire fence that separated the parkland from adjoining private land in the sandstone area. These signs spell it out. The signs are erected on, uh, they're about two meters above the ground, more, more than that, I would say, eight by eight inch posts. There's no pruning around here. Uh, they're erected along that whole area barbed wire fencing, and to this point, they are um, keeping vehicles out. Thank you. Thank you then. We're having a lunch break. <laughs>